0: Okay, maybe just for the last few people get in. Um, I wanted to tell you guys, just because you might be interested, tonight at um, 7 o'clock over at the uh, Randall's Visitor Center, you know, by the library there, they've had a... The Ethics Department here at Loma Linda's had an ongoing uh, conference on uh, abortion. Well, it's called the Moral Status of the Human Embryo. And so there's kind of a discussion, debate uh, tonight at 7 and um, anyway, I get to represent the physician, not that there is a physician side of this, but it uh, might be an interesting discussion if you want to check that out. Okay, so today we do Second Samuel and 1 Chronicles, uh, two books, because these two books tell the story of David. And next time we're going to go through the Psalms. So really it's two weeks on David, even though all the Psalms weren't written by David. And then after that, we get into uh, the life of Solomon, which is kind of an interesting story. Okay, so let's pray as we begin. Dear Father, please enlighten our minds and inspire us just now as we discuss David, who you described as a man after your own heart, and please help us to understand what this means. Help us to be men and women after your own heart as well. Amen. Okay, so today we'll go through the story of David, and the big subject, though, that will kind of come in and out over the next two weeks will be the subject of inspiration. First of all, it's surprising where you find things like this in the Bible, in the book of Acts, uh, where Paul is giving a sermon and we read about God removed Saul and made David their king. God spoke favorably about David. He said, I have found that David, son of Jesse, is a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And so... What I hope over the next two weeks to get some insights uh, into is, well, God in the Old Testament declared David to be a man after his own heart. What does that mean? What would it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? Of course, the most famous story in every kid's book and since I have three kids, I've been through this story about a million times and uh, our kids would act out the story of Goliath um, you know over and over again. This is probably the most well-known story about David. and uh, But really... Quite uh, noble words here as he went out to kill the giant. You are coming against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Now, we could trace that word through to the Old Testament and say this is referring to the Son of God, but we won't do that. I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the Israelite armies which you have defied. This very day the Lord will put you in my power. I will defeat you and cut off your head, and he did He chopped his head off. And I will give the bodies of the Philistine soldiers to the birds and animals to eat. Then the whole world will know that Israel has a God. And notice, and everyone here will see that the Lord does not need swords or spears to save his people. He is victorious in battle and he will put all of you in our power. One way of reading the story would be to say, look, God really wanted to use the people militarily to conquer just as they did David. I think just as David killed Goliath, But you could also read this to say, hey, you know what? Here we have a boy going out and killing a giant. And if the people would just trust God, the point should be he doesn't need swords or spears. Well, lots of other interesting stories, though. So there, David, man after God's own heart. Um, But let's uh, add a few other interesting details. Of course, Saul was always against David. And uh, we read on next chapter, Saul's jealous of David. And it says, all the king wants from you as payment for the bride, his daughter, are the foreskins of a hundred dead Philistines as revenge on his enemies. This was how Saul planned to have David killed by the Philistines. He thought he couldn't do it. Kill a hundred of them, get, get their foreskins. Uh, he's not going to make it. And, um, you know, I don't know how many of you remember this little detail in the story, but David and his men went out and struck down 200 Philistines. David brought the foreskins and they counted them out for the king so that David could become the king's son-in-law. And just wondered here, counting out foreskins, did they make them in piles of 10 or how did they you know, come up to that number of 200? But anyway, he was really zealous and he, uh, he and his men went out and did a lot of killing. Was he a man after God's own heart uh, when he got all those foreskins? Well, I won't read through the whole story here, but of course, you remember in 1 Samuel, which we finished last time, all these episodes where um, David is fleeing from from Saul. And you remember the opportunities that David had to kill Saul, and he always uh, turned down the opportunity. Here's another story. Was was David a man after God's own heart? Here, so David is fleeing from Saul, and he went to King Achish of Gath. And he became very much afraid of King Achish. So whenever David was around them, he pretended to be insane and acted like a madman when they tried to restrain him. He would scribble on the city gates and let spit drool down his beard. Kind of interesting. Brave David here under a certain period of time uh, behaved like an insane man because he was afraid of this king. Well, we get to a subject here we'll go in and out of um, this week and next week. And... um, This is kind of an inflammatory subject, I know, in many Christian circles, but the subjects of prophets and inspiration. And I'll explain why I'm asking these questions now when we're talking about the life of David. But let me just, some questions to think about. Um, Can a prophet make a mistake? Are prophets infallible? Every bit of advice uh, that you might ask on a spiritual matter, you would get it straight and 100% correct uh, from a prophet. Health matters you were to ask for advice on a matter of health, would a prophet absolutely reliably speak for God in those matters, relational matters, and so on? And uh, I bring it up here just because it may be a small uh, story, but um, let's just uh, read about Nathan the prophet. King David was settled in his palace, and the Lord kept him safe from all his enemies. Then the king said to the prophet, Nathan, here I am living in a house built of cedar, but God's covenant box is kept in a tent. And Nathan answered here very authoritatively, do whatever you have in mind because the Lord is with you. Go for it. But that night the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David that I say to him, you are not the one to build a temple for me to live in. And so Nathan had to go back in and say, uh, you know what, I guess I was wrong. And, uh, but yet we read again and again that Nathan is called a prophet. And you remember he came back to David several times with messages from the Lord. God's prophet. Was he a prophet? Uh, Did he make a mistake initially in his advice? Good idea. You know, oops, sorry, it wasn't a good idea. I think it's important how we think about prophets. Are they perfect people? Let's skip forward to Jeremiah. This is a very interesting exchange um between Jeremiah and God. Jeremiah said, "Then I said, Lord, you understand, remember me and help me. Let me have revenge on those who persecute me. Do not be so patient with them that they succeed in killing me. Remember that it is for your sake that I am insulted. You spoke to me and I listened to every word. I belong to you, Lord God Almighty, and so your words filled my heart with joy and happiness. I did not spend my time with other people laughing and having a good time, in obedience to your orders I stayed by myself." But notice, and was filled with anger. Why do I keep on suffering? Why are my wounds incurable? Why won't they heal? Do you intend to disappoint me like a stream that goes dry in the summer? And so he starts out here, let me have revenge on those who persecute me. And a lot of the, so many of the songs overlap um, this theme. What do we do with these words? Well, here we have God responding. Wouldn't you love to have an editorial comment by God all the way through the Bible? But to this, the Lord replied, if you return, I will take you back and you will be my servant again. If instead of talking nonsense, you proclaim a worthwhile message, you will be my prophet again. So here we have holy man of God, Jeremiah, prophet, clearly, and uh, God telling him, you're talking nonsense. And if you return, you'll be my prophet again. Was Jeremiah a prophet? Absolutely. But did God intervene here and say, you know what, Uh, this wish for vengeance on your enemies is nonsense. Kind of interesting. When we just look at the Bible writers, uh, were these perfect men? Um, Of course, Moses, uh, you know, what a guy Moses was, but you know, David, we're not even in yet to the escapades of David, but I think you all know off the top of your head, uh, a number of the things that David did that would suggest we'd not want to follow and copy David Um, in every detail, but uh, Solomon that we'll talk about, um, we'll read that Solomon sacrificed his children to the god Moloch. And the book of Ecclesiastes was written after Solomon came back. Now, would we have a problem with a modern day prophet who, um, well, for a while was involved in child sacrifice, but then reformed and now has a message from God? That would be a little bit difficult, wouldn't it? But here are the words of Solomon. Jonah, We read a little bit of Jonah, who remember got a message from God, and um, he knew God was so kind, he'd probably forgive those people of Nineveh, so he's off to Tarshish. And then he gives the message, he goes up on a hill and wishes for it to burn down. And when it didn't, he was so angry, he told God, see, I knew that's what you'd do. You're so kind, so gracious, why don't you just kill me? That's exactly what he said. And it's kind of funny. The book of Jonah ends with God saying to Jonah, you know, don't you even care about the animals in that city? But yet God used Jonah to give a message. And Peter, of course, who denied Jesus three times, but then he came back, of course, but you read in the book of Galatians that Paul had to confront Peter publicly and to his face for his hypocritical attitude in acting a certain way with one people and a different way with other people. Okay, the point here is not to uh, to trash these, these people or, or the Bible or inspiration or anything like that. It is just to make the point that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. He is our model, and all view of inspiration filters through uh, the life, the words, the teachings, the death of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that we, is worthwhile, perfectly trying to model your life after. And of course, other writers in modern times, Martin Luther, Um, who's going to diminish anything that Martin Luther did? I mean, what a hero, right? But did you know that Martin Luther had a nickname um, called the King of Hops? Apparently he uh, liked beer. But would that suggest that his entire message was worthless? Obviously not. What about C.S. Lewis? Um, I'm listening to a C.S. Lewis uh, book right now. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Very, very deep. Um, But C.S. Lewis apparently liked to smoke. Would that mean that we should... uh, diminish all the writings of C.S. Lewis. Okay, so again, I'm not trying to be mean to any of these other people, but we tend to have a certain view of prophets and inspiration. They're perfect people. They can 100% rely on them all the time. They had no flaws. And just the record in every single case would not uh, tend to hold that up. Daniel might be the one exception, but do you remember what did Daniel do when he was encountered with God? That all of his... Beauty, all of his own perfection of character seemed like nothing to Daniel at that time. <clears throat> and next time we'll get into the Psalms in more detail here, but for now I'll just raise the question and uh, then we'll talk about it next time. But I think this is very important. I think when we go through it and understand it, God looks entirely good in these passages. Would you agree with this in Psalm 7710 um, in this very uh, very sad Psalm here, depressing And in the middle here, what hurts me the most is this, that God is no longer powerful. Is God not powerful? Well, that's the way David apparently felt at that time. And we see the danger here of picking out a verse and saying that here, this is truth. Remember the book of Job? The three friends told lies about God. So we have to be careful here. If we have a memory text from the Bible, key text, uh, we need to put that in its context. And we read this last time, happier those who pay you back for what you've done to us, who take your babies and smash them against a rock, um, can be used to justify any sort of uh, violence. And David would say about his enemies, I hate them with a total hatred. Of course, Jesus would say, love your enemies. Because we have it both ways, can we be a certain way at one time and a different way at another time? Depend. You know, it's all in the Bible, so we can just go with uh, whatever seems right. Or do we hold Jesus... To be the standard. We're going to come back and read through almost the entire uh, chapter, Psalm 139 next time, because I think this is uh, a wonderful uh, chapter. But this is how David felt, and we see how God intervened in this conversation with David. Okay, another issue just to bring up uh, really quickly here, but um, are there any mistakes in the Bible? Is it um, absolutely perfect? Well, it is perfect in its revelation of who God is. But let's just pick on Matthew a little bit and make a few points um, quickly. Again, just because these issues come up and I think they should not diminish our faith in God and they should not diminish our faith and trust in the Bible as the fully inspired word of God. But here in Matthew chapter one, as we read through here, the ancestors of Jesus. We go through and these are underlined for a reason, but then Matthew concludes. So then there were 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile in Babylon and 14 from then to the birth of the Messiah. And that seems pretty incredible. 14, 14, 14. But when we go back here to first Chronicles in between Jehoram and Isaiah, we see that there were three other names in there. So they're just left out in the Matthew account. Again, is this a big deal? I don't see it as a big deal at all. But uh, let's just bring up a couple of other interesting things. Matthew's use of uh, inspiration or the Old Testament uh, is sometimes rather interesting. You know the story about how Joseph and Mary flee with Jesus to Egypt. And Matthew says, this was done to make come true what the Lord had said through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. And this is from the book of Hosea, where it says, the Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But read on. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people Israel sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Um, So it is interesting sometimes how Matthew would use certain passages to support Jesus being the Messiah. But then we read about this one. The more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. Here we have Jesus being quoted in Matthew. As a result, the punishment for the murder of all innocent people will fall on you from the murder of innocent Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, there are lots of Zacharias in the Old Testament. Um, I used to know how many, but lots of them. Uh, but when you go back and clearly in the context, what Jesus is talking about here is described in 2 Chronicles, where the king, Joash, forgot about the loyal service that Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had given him, and we read on the rest of the story. So it's the wrong uh, father here. Berechiah actually should have been Jehoiada. We know from the story, repeated a couple of times in the Old Testament. So um, our options here are either to say, well, Jesus made a mistake as he was... Um, telling about the story and that's not the interpretation I'd prefer to give, but is it possible? I mean, uh, you know, we have uh, many Bibles in one house. You can go online and pull up, you know, 20 English versions of the Bible and it's all right there at our fingertips. And of course, back in Matthew's day, they didn't have a scroll in every house. And so Jesus, or Matthew here, as he's writing this out, don't you think it's possible he just forgot the wrong father of Zechariah? Would that be a big deal? Well, you could say maybe uh, someone copied it wrong later on. And I guess what I would say here is uh, we imagine God. Let's just say Matthew maybe made the mistake. Um, God could have sent an angel down immediately. You know, stop, you got the wrong father, Zechariah. Got to fix that in there. Um, could have had a divine revelation or a copyist later who was making a mistake. Could have been a divine intervention to correct that mistake. Um, I, I almost... Um, this might sound wrong, but I almost like that these little things are in there. And it, it shows God respecting a little bit of freedom even to, to goof up on these little things. Does it take away from the message of the Bible? No, a little mistake here should not uh, diminish the significance one little bit, in my opinion. And again, another example in Matthew. Then what the prophet Jeremiah had said came true. They took the thirty silver coins, the amount the people of Israel had agreed to pay for him, and this amazing parallel. The problem is, this is directly out of uh, Zechariah 11:13, and you don't find that anywhere in the book of um, Jeremiah. Zechariah is incredible. The parallels with Jesus are right there. Okay, again, does not this little uh, problem here should not shake our faith uh, one little bit? Now, one view of inspiration is that God was actually in the pen and all of the words were actually selected, chosen by God. Um, I have a hard time reconciling that, though, with a verse like this. Here's Paul saying, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, however you say that. No one can say then that you were baptized as my disciples. Oh, yes, I also baptized Stephanus and his family, but I can't remember whether I baptized anyone else. Now, the Holy Spirit certainly knew how many people that, um, Paul had baptized. Okay. He could have given him the number exactly with you know, seven or whatever. But, uh, here we have Paul just writing a letter. Like we had write a letter, was Paul inspired by God? Absolutely. Okay. But again, this little, uh, seemingly meaningless thing, I think gives us an important clue about how the Bible was inspired. And then Paul would say, now concerning what I wrote, what you wrote about unmarried people, because the Corinthians had asked Paul his advice on a number of things Paul would go on to say, I do not have a command from the Lord, but I give my opinion. He's specifically saying, I don't have a command from the Lord on this, but I'll give you my opinion. As one who by the Lord's mercy is worthy of trust, he goes on to give his opinion on the matter and then concludes by saying, that is my opinion and I think I too have God's spirit. All right, kind of interesting here. Uh, A little later on, we'll talk about translational issues in the Bible. And, uh, you know, the big point is the Bible is completely reliable. You can trust the translation you have of the Bible as a whole, but um, it's interesting here that in the first printed version of the King James, there was about one error for every 10 pages. And some of these are still in the current King James Bible. I even, I went online to crosswalk and Bible gateway. I thought, well, maybe they fixed it by now, but it's still there. If you read in Matthew 23, 24, this is just one example. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. This was just a printing error. It was meant to be strain out a gnat, but it's still there in all of the uh, King James versions. And this one, 1631 printed edition was Thou shalt commit adultery. They fixed that one. (laughs) All right, but there are some things here that, that uh, that still persist. Yeah, that, that copy of the 1631 is probably valuable, I don't know. There are rare exceptions, rare exceptions of things that are still there that, uh, in, in some versions, that, that probably shouldn't be. Again, rare exceptions. I'm pointing out, you know, kind of uh, the, some of the big examples. For the most part, there are no issues whatsoever. But here, this is the new King King James Version, which comes from the King James Version. And uh, we read this story about the man, remember, who was laying there for 38 years and Jesus comes by, and in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. And you know the story. Jesus came by and um, healed him. But um, here's the difficulty thing. Now, in the New King James, there are no brackets here. It's just you read right through um, and uh, you wouldn't know there was any problem. But uh, we just think about this. Imagine here that um, the way this was designed is that an angel actually went down, stirred the water, and the first person in was healed, which, of course, would mean the sickest people wouldn't have much of a chance right, of getting in and, and being healed. And we just imagine what's going on up in heaven, you know, with uh, um, here this really sick man for 38 years, and he never has a chance. I mean, that would be, a, I think, paint a rather negative picture of God. And this really doesn't belong in there. It was added later, it really should say it was a, well, actually it's not in the originals at all, but it was a legend that an angel stirred the water and that the first person in was healed. That's, that's what the people there believed. And so most of your modern translations will just leave that part out altogether. So, is the Bible perfect? Yes, it's a perfect revelation of who God is in character. Um, it, but it was written by inspired human beings in human language, and everything that human is human is imperfect. And some of you uh, coming from a Seventh-day Adventist background, uh, just a couple. Thoughts on the subject of inspiration, which I agree with. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. And another one, the Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God. But God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. So we'll come back to this next time when we talk about the Psalms when we go through these challenging verses about babies uh, being cast on the rocks. But let's, uh, let's finish with a major story here uh, about David and Bathsheba. Let's read through the story and um, I think there's some interesting conclusions from this story. In the spring the time when kings go out to battle. Isn't that interesting? In the spring when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his mercenaries, and Israel's army to war. They destroyed the Ammonites and attacked Rabbah while David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, when evening came, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the royal palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and she was very pretty. David sent someone to ask about the woman. The man said, she's Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and daughter and wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this is important because David knew this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We'll talk about why. So David sent his messengers and took her. They asked? No, they took her. Uh, She came to him and he went to bed with her. She had just cleansed herself after her monthly period. You wonder why some of these details are necessary in the Bible, (laughs) but it's there. And then she went home. The woman had become pregnant. So she sent someone to tell David that she was pregnant. Then David sent a messenger to Joab saying, send me the Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the troops were and how the war was going. Go home, David said to Uriah, and wash your feet. Uriah left the royal palace and the king sent a present to him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the royal palace among his superior mercenaries. He didn't go home. When they told David Uriah didn't go home, David asked Uriah, didn't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark and the army of Israel and Judah are in temporary shelters, and my commander Joab and your majesty's mercenaries are living in the field. Should I then go to my house to eat and drink and go to bed with my wife? I solemnly swear, as sure as you're living, I won't do this. I mean, this is really an an upright man here. And David said to Uriah, Then stay here today and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. David summoned him, ate and drank with him and got him drunk. But that evening Uriah went to lie down on his bed among his superiors, mercenaries. He didn't go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. That's really diabolical. And in the letter he wrote, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is heaviest. I mean, you carry your own uh, death letter here. And then abandon him so that he'll be struck down and die. Since Joab had kept the city under observation, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the experienced warriors were. The men of the city came out and fought Joab. Some of the people, namely some of David's mercenaries, fell and died, including Uriah the Hittite. Then Joab sent a messenger to report to David all the details of the battle. And he commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king about the battle, the king may become angry. He might ask you, why did you go so close to the city to fight? Why didn't you know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech? Didn't a woman on the wall throw a small millstone at him and kill him? Why did you go so close to the wall? If the king asks this, then say, your man Uriah the Hittite is also dead." The messenger left, and when he arrived, he reported to David everything Joab told him to say. The messenger said, their men overpowered us and came to attack us in the field. Then we forced them back to the entrance of the city gate. The archers on the wall shot down at your mercenaries, and some of your majesty's mercenaries died. Your man, Uriah the Hittite, also is dead. David said to the messenger, this is what you are to say to Joab. Don't let this thing trouble you because a sword can kill one person as easily as another. I mean, this is this conversation, uh, uh, very annoying here. Writing back to Joab, oh, don't worry about it, it's okay. And we know underlying this, what the truth is. Strengthen your attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for him. When her mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to his home and she became his wife. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord considered David's actions evil. Okay, he's probably right. Now, (laughs) um, how do we intervene here? Well, why why I said it's important that David knew that this woman, even before anything happened, was Uriah's wife is, uh, again, we put this together now with the chronology in 1 Chronicles. This is the list of David's famous soldiers. And these are the people that went with him Um, even as they are um, fleeing from Saul. So they'd been with him a long time. Together with the rest of the people of Israel, they helped him become king as the Lord had promised and they kept his kingdom strong. And we read through the list of the people who had stuck with David for a long time. And right there on the list is Uriah the Hittite. He wasn't just some unknown person to David. This was someone who had been loyal to him. And uh, David knew he was so trustworthy, he could even give him a letter telling Joab he should be killed and he trusted that he wouldn't uh, open that letter and read it. So, one important thing here is how was David viewed by the people at this time? And a woman came up to David and uh, this occurs in 2 Samuel 14, 17, but she said, the king is like God's angel and can distinguish good from evil. Very significant here as we decide how is God going to intervene with David after he's just had... Uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And uh, after he's had her husband killed, that the view of the people looking at David was, boy, you are like God's angel. You can distinguish good from evil. Okay, so God has to do something, right? His reputation has really been tarnished in all of this. What should God do? How does he go on record? Because if David does this, and well, he's God's angel, like God's angel, then the people be just as justified to uh, carry on in that behavior as well. So you know the story. Again, coming back to the prophet Nathan, how uh, Nathan went to him and said, told him this story. There were two men who lived in the same town. One was rich and the other poor. The rich men had many cattle and sheep, while the poor men had only one lamb, which he had brought. He took care of it and it grew up in his home with his children. He would feed it some of his own food, let it drink from his cup and hold it on his lap. The lamb was like a daughter to him. One day a visitor arrived at the rich man's home. The rich man didn't want to kill one of his own animals to fix a meal for him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared a meal for his guests. David became very angry at the rich man and said, I swear by the living Lord that the man who did this ought to die. For having done such a cruel thing, he must pay back four times as much as he took. And very dramatically here, Nathan says, you are that man. And this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I made you king of Israel and rescued you from Saul. I gave you his kingdom and his wives. I made you king over Israel and Judah. If this had not been enough, I would have given you twice as much. Why then have you disobeyed my commands? Why did you do this evil thing? You had Uriah killed in battle. You let the Ammonites kill him and then you took his wife. Now in every generation, some of your descendants will die a violent death because you have disobeyed me and have taken Uriah's wife." I swear to you that I will cause someone from your own family to bring trouble on you. You will see it when I take your wives from you and give them to another man. What's really interesting here is, of course, this is talking about Absalom. And did God do it? Did he make Absalom do these things? Uh, It actually, I think, was David's own um, impotence here. After doing this with Bathsheba, he could not take the moral high ground and really raise his kids like Absalom as he should have. So I think his action here led to this, that here we have God, you know, I'm going to do it to you. You will see it when I take your wives from you and give them to another man, and he will have intercourse with them in broad daylight, which Absalom did. You sinned in secret, but I will make this happen in broad daylight for all Israel to see. Notice David's response right away. I have sinned against the Lord, David said. But notice the response from Nathan right away. The Lord forgives you. You will not die. But because you have shown such contempt for the Lord in doing this, your child will die. Then Nathan went home. The Lord caused the child that Uriah's wife had born to David to become very sick. And that child died. And um, this was obviously a very uh, public thing, the death of this child. And um, again, we're we're troubled by um, what happened to this child. But we see this nation really on the brink of collapse. David's son, Solomon, right away, they have the kingdom split and everything collapses. God, is, God has a man after his own heart here in David. And I think even the despicable things that David did, his response to suddenly realizing and being exposed to this, I think says something good about David. Right away, I have sinned against the Lord. And we might compare how other people have responded in the Bible when they've been rebuked, We'll read the story of Jeroboam. The prophet came up and rebuked him and his response was, seize that man. And do you think Nathan a little bit wondered, you know, how is uh, David going to, uh, he might just kill me for telling this story. And Eli, we read last time, remember the rebuke about Eli's sons and Eli's response was, "Was uh, well, he's God. He may do whatever he thinks is right, but there was no action on his part to reform. So here was David's, response, which is recorded in Psalm 51. And this is um, a psalm that is uh, the prayer that David had after being confronted by Nathan the prophet. And these are very, very uh, deep and uh, meaningful words here. Be merciful to me, O God, because of your constant love. Because of your great mercy, wipe away my sins. Wash away all my evil and make me clean from my sin. I recognize my faults, I am always conscious of my sins. I have sinned against you, only against you, and done what you consider evil. Did David only sin against God? Um, This is interesting, but I think what this points to is he's king. He is God's messenger in the eyes of the people. And the reason this is so serious is he just ruined God's reputation completely. And um, I wish we had time to read the verse in Ezekiel, But when we get there, we'll talk about it. God is always talking about his name. You've defied my name. You've ruined my reputation. And, you know, we could imagine God is an egomaniac and he needs to have lots of praise to feel good about himself. But of course, that's not true. What God does need, though, is a good reputation. Have we, even Christians, always given God a good reputation to the rest of the world? And so what is so damaging here about destroying God's name is reputation, is he is much less desirable uh, to other people who might otherwise want to uh, get to know God. So you are right in judging me. You are justified in condemning me. I have been evil from the day I was born, from the day I was conceived. I've been very sinful. And just for the sake of time here, uh, let's skip forward a little bit here in Psalm 51. But David says, create a pure heart in me, O God, and put a new and loyal spirit in me. Notice what David is asking for here is to change. He doesn't like the way he is. He wants a new heart, a right spirit. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Give me again the joy that comes from your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Again, that willingness to listen. Then I will teach sinners your commands and they will turn back to you. Spare my life, O God, and save me and I will gladly proclaim your righteousness. Help me to speak, Lord, and I will praise you. You do not want sacrifices or I would offer them. Wouldn't you think David would go out and kill a thousand lambs after this? You do not want sacrifices or I would offer them. You are, you are not pleased with burnt offerings. My sacrifice is a humble spirit, O oh God. You will not reject a humble and repentant heart. That's exactly the way to repent um, perfectly. But notice here, what is this talking about? Does David want to be healed or pardoned? And I think all the way through what I see God wanting is for his people to have a new heart, a right spirit, to change the way they think and act, a new heart, a right spirit. And what we need to be healed of is we are really infected with this completely self-centered, me first, survival of the fittest mentality where we will be willing to kill in order that I can survive. It's all about me rather than to lay down our life for another. We need to be healed of that. And just to give you um, a number of examples here, we read in Isaiah 53, we are healed by the punishment He suffered, made whole by the blows He received. We'll talk about that. How does the death of Jesus have anything to do with with healing? Jeremiah, we read this earlier would say, why are my wounds incurable? Why won't they heal? And he's not talking about a skin wound or something. He's talking about a heart wound. Lord, heal me and I will be completely well. Are we healable? In Isaiah 6, make these people close-minded, plug their ears, shut their eyes. Jesus quoted this. Otherwise, they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their minds and return and be healed. Okay, God's ultimately in the business of healing us, not just covering us with something. And uh, the plan of salvation, you know, the word salvation, salve, is to heal. Like, just like you salvage something from a, a junkyard. You put the pieces together, you put them back again. It's to make something whole. The plan of salvation is the plan of healing. And uh, let me just give you a number of examples. It's all the way through the Old Testament. The worst diagnosis you can possibly have by God is to be unhealable, just like a physician. Worst diagnosis, this is something I can't heal. And uh, he talks about it with Judah in Second Chronicles. The book of Second Chronicles ends with God after saying, I did all these things for them. And in the description, he could no longer heal them. Jeremiah would say, is there no medicine in Gilead? Are there no doctors here? Why then have my people not been healed? We tend to think of the plan of salvation um, in today's day and age almost exclusively in legal terms. And the physician healing model of salvation is really what runs all the way through the Bible. God wants to change the way we think and act. Jeremiah 30, the Lord says to his people, your wounds are incurable, your injuries cannot be healed. There is no one to take care of you, no remedy for your sores, no hope of healing for you. And we know that Jeremiah 30 here, this is written just before they're off into the Babylonian captivity. And the ultimate issue was God saying, I can't heal you. You're not responding anymore to truth. There's nothing I can do. Okay, God makes this diagnosis of all the other nations. About Assyria and Nahum, remember Jonah went off to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And then sometime later, Nahum had a message for Assyria. Now they're really hard. Now they're not responding. And God says, there's no remedy for your injuries. Your wounds cannot be healed. That is the death diagnosis. Babylon. Jeremiah would make a diagnosis about Babylon. Babylon will suddenly fall and be shattered. Cry for it. Bring medicine for its pain. Maybe it can be healed. We wanted to heal Babylon, but it couldn't be healed. Let's abandon it and go to our own land. God has judged Babylon. Its judgment is complete. But again, it was complete because there's just scar tissue left in a sense. There's nothing salvageable, nothing that could be healed. We get a diagnosis at a certain point in time about Egypt. People of Egypt, go to Gilead and look for medicine. All your medicine is proved useless. Nothing can heal you. Remember the people who died in the wilderness, we tend to think of this as forgiveness is the end all. We just need to be forgiven and then all is well. But remember, right as they went off into the 40 years wandering, God says, I can't do anything with you. You're gonna have to wander in the desert. But yet God says, I'll forgive them. Okay, forgiveness, yeah, God can forgive, that's great. But we have to be responsive to that and have a new heart and a right spirit. Stephen, of course, as he's stoned to death by the Pharisees, would say, uh, don't remember this sin against them. In other words, God, just forgive them. And this was, uh, I think he had watched Jesus, who just as he's dying by these people who are so hardened, looked out and said, forgive them, Father. So forgiveness is not the end. We need to respond to that goodness, that kindness of God, the forgiveness, which he just lavishes out on us. And we need to be responsive to that or it doesn't mean anything. So it's all about a change. And I think we have tended to, sometimes, some of us, have tended to put the blood in the wrong place. We want to be covered. We want it shielding us from someone or something. The blood should be on the inside. Jesus would say, I can guarantee this truth. If you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't have the source of life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. And we read on a few chapters later in John 17, eternal life is to know you. Eternal life is to know God intimately as a friend. And so Jesus came that we might know what God is like. We internalize this truth about God. We become friends with God. We enter into a relationship with God. And just like you drink fluid, you eat bread, it assimilates it becomes a part of you and you're transformed from within. So the blood should be on the inside working its way out. It's not to shield. So just points on healing. This is all the way through then the New Testament. Paul would say in Ephesians 3, yes, may you come to know his love. How do we know his love? It's through Jesus Christ. May you come to know his love, although it can never be fully known, and so be completely filled with the very nature, the very character of God. Does God not want us to uh, grow up and to become like him. Absolutely. In 2 Corinthians, and all of us have had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. Again, not a brightness, but a character likeness. And as the spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him and we reflect his glory even more. Again, reflecting his character and God wants this so desperately to happen, not just for each one of us individually, but what happens is we reflect the love and the character of God. This doesn't draw attention back to us, right? All the attention goes back up to God. And so people see what God is like through us, and they're drawn to him. They shouldn't be drawn to us individually as people. And in First John 2, this is how we can be sure we are in union with God. If we say that we remain in union with God, we should live just as Jesus Christ did. And this can be very discouraging and depressing because, of course, of each one of us, we look at our own lives, we see I am not living just as Jesus Christ did. But this is a promise, not a, not a command. So when Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect, um, that's a promise, not a, not a demand from God. I like the Message Bible translation of this. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. You're kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. How did he get all of that out of just a very short little verse here? But the point is be like God. Pattern yourself after Jesus Christ who has been generous and gracious to you. Why don't you start living that way to other people? So don't be discouraged by the fact that God wants to, uh, to make us better. It's like if you came to a physician and you're really sick and the physician just said, I forgive you, go home. you wanna get better, right? Would you not wanna get completely better? Or would you say, no, leave a little bit of the sickness in there. I don't wanna get better all the way. I just wanna get a little bit better. Uh, why not, uh, I wouldn't follow and trust the advice of the physician As an example, just not to be discouraged by words that would suggest that healing can actually occur, that's good news. Remember the thief on the cross. How many good things did he do? Um, All he did was he trusted Jesus. Uh, He trusted the one hanging next to him. Did he really know who Jesus was fully? And yet Jesus would say, you'll be in the kingdom. So the criteria for salvation, the beginning of the salvation process is just to trust in God. We admire who Jesus is in character. And uh, then just like a regular physician, you keep your appointments, you trust him, you follow his advice, and you don't worry about the healing process. Just worry about trusting the God who's just like Jesus. Okay, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for the revelation of Jesus that is all the way through the Bible. May we, may we be responsive. May we be willing to listen. May we respond in trust and in faith to you. And um, we ask that others would see your goodness and your character through us. Amen.